welcome to a too much effing perspective rock and roll recreation where we replay one of our effing favorite episodes from the past i'm your host alan keller and i'm your co-host alex hoffman today we're going to bring you our conversation with punk rock legend john langford from the mecons you know i remember after we recorded with john i felt like a spinal tap rookie not only was he better versed in the movie than i was or you He also knew the outtakes and storylines that were filmed, but didn't make the final cut. John really schooled us. It was a humbling and somewhat embarrassing experience. I mean, we're supposed to be the experts. So listeners, please don't consider us Spinal Tap posers after hearing this. You know, we were just outplayed. (laughs) But we are. I mean, John proved it. Okay. You know, on second thought, maybe we shouldn't run this episode after all. Maybe we should replay the David Cross episode where he claimed to have never even seen the movie. Yeah, and he too took us for a ride. Anyway, too late. We've already taken John's interview out of the cloud vault and got it all spooled up and ready to go. Is any of that true? No, but no turning back now. So listeners, settle in and get ready to enjoy our chat with the Mekons, John Langford. But first, a short break. So John... The Mekons have been around for 44 years, and I have got to think that you see a lot of similarities between the band Spinal Tap and the band The Mekons. Um, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. (laughs) Can you tell me what some of them are? (laughs) Okay, how about this? There's a scene in Spinal Tap where they run into Duke Fame who used to open for them and now is selling out the Enormo Dome. And he has to go and wait in the lobby. I know. Yeah, that's right. And, and, (laughs) and what is, I'm sure that there've been bands that have opened for you that have had far better fortune than the Mekons. Is that true? Uh, Yes. You too opened for us in 1979. I remember them being tiny, like school children or something. And they were in our dressing room (laughs) and then they, rushed out onto the stage and played to about 20 people. And our bass player, Mary Jenner, at the time, said, you should come and see these guys. They're great. So I went out and watched them. And, you know, this is at the height of punk rock. And these dudes are doing these crazy stadium moves and their music is so triumphant, melodic. And I'm like, this is going nowhere. Haven't these guys heard the news? (laughs) You know? (laughs) They were still booing them when we came on. (laughs) Weren't they a little competitive too? Didn't their manager say, all the Mekons have that you don't have is attitude? Yeah, in the uh, giant U2 coffee table book, which a friend of mine has. And on page 569, The Edge discusses that night. And uh, basically their manager told them to watch us (laughs) because we had attitude. (laughs) Apparently they didn't. Now they seem to have far too much attitude, so I think they should still watch us. Then they could learn humility, maybe, and uh, (laughs) shame, which they don't seem to have any of. (laughs) I want to talk about punk. Your band started in 1977, correct? That's right. The first gig we did was in 77. Did you um, go to the Sex Pistols show in Leeds in 1976? I'd love to say I did, but I didn't. I was washing my hair that night, but uh, <laughs> other members of the Mekons went and were suitably impressed at how ramshackle and easy it looked. So 
the, the premise at that time and the Sex Pistols came and said, anyone can be in a band. And the Mekons basically based our career solely on that idea that you didn't even have to be able to play a musical instrument to be in a band. You just had to form a band. And it could really be anything. So thanks to the Sex Pistols, I thought they were incredibly brave at that time as well. It was a very divisive time culturally, you know, seismic cultural change which split families and social groupings and there was real violence turned on them as young kids who were just doing what they thought they needed to do respect to the sex pistols you know and probably if they hadn't done that gig which i didn't go to i probably wouldn't be the person i am now so (laughs) so i visited england with my parents during the silver jubilee i think that was 77 maybe when God Save the Queen was number one in the charts. Yeah, and so they had just been yanked from the radio, Sex Pistols, and that was on every BBC station. That's all they were talking about, and I was fascinated by it. And I remember walking around and seeing all the punk memorabilia and the posters, and yeah. I came away from that trip with one piece of memorabilia, one record. You know what that record was? God Save the Queen? No. Close. The Jackson 5 EP for the song Enjoy Yourself. (laughs) You've always been an astute collector, Alan. (laughs) I was zigging where they were zagging. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but I could have gotten a Jackson 5 record at Kmart back home. (laughs) And to be an American kid accidentally at the crucible of British punk and new wave and to be so unaware that you come away with a Michael Jackson souvenir. I mean, to me, 1977 through 79 is the greatest period in rock history. Oh, really? That's interesting. Well, okay. I'll just I don't tell- remember it being a very happy time. Everyone likes to talk to us about it being this incredibly creative, wonderful time, but it was actually kind of scary. John, can you elaborate on what was scary about it? Physical violence at the gigs from kind of organized right-wing groups on the street where we lived up in Leeds. It was a constant atmosphere of threat and threat to women as well, because at that time, the Yorkshire Ripper was loose in Leeds. Sorry, I thought we were talking about a comedy movie, and I'm just like (laughs) talking about the Yorkshire Ripper. Saucy Jack, he's the naughty one. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, they say art flourishes in times of crisis. And I just want to read you the best albums of the year, according to New Music Express, for 1977 and 1979. And it's not all punk and new wave. It's like every genre at this time is creating their absolute best work. So let's start with 1977. Their album of the year, David Bowie, Heroes. Other top tens were Elvis Costello, My Aim is True, Television, Marquee Moon, The Clash, Iggy Pop, Lust for Life, Ramones, Leave Home, Stranglers, Radis Navegicus, another Ramones, Rocket to Russia, and then Randy Newman's on there, Talking Heads, Cheap Trick, Muddy Waters, Peter Gabriel. It's just an amazing amount of talent. And then in 79, 
You've got the Talking Heads Fear of Music, which is one of my favorite albums, Joy Division, Jam Setting Suns, Gang of Four, Elvis Costello, another one of my favorite albums, Armed Forces, London Calling is eighth on that list, and um, Graham Parker squeezing out the sparks. Ah. Compared to today, which I think has a similar vibe of fear and trepidation, it doesn't seem like music is up to the task. What do you think about that? What, right now? Yeah. I think you'd have to talk to someone a lot younger. My kids are very excited by a lot of the music that's coming out. I feel as we all have periods in our lives where we think the music is great and it's never going to be that good again. I hear things I like quite a lot. So I listen to what my kids are listening to, whether people are addressing what's really going on in in the world at the moment in the same direct way that punk rock did. I don't know. I think there's a lot of like hip-hop music that definitely attempts to do that. But I think in terms of rock music, there were a lot of bands that were hitting Thatcher. And I can't think of a rock band that was addressing the Trump era in the same way. And to me, it seems equally dangerous. What's happened now is your big rock bands are like the Foo Fighters right. and U2 still. And I don't know. These bands are really established corporate acts. It's like what was going on in 1977, 78, 79 was the, the lid had come off and the industry didn't really know what was happening. And it was a time of immense change and it was stuff it was change that was coming from the bottom from the grassroots up since bill clinton signed those papers saying it was all right for anyone to own a thousands of radio stations there's not really the cultural outlets we had before and the internet is a, a disappointment i think i thought that would be this great free thing and it's like now it's the information tollway so the business and the corporate business end of the music industry has really got the lid on very tight and it's very hard for anyone to do anything very meaningful at the moment i mean we chip around on the fringes with the mekons we're still trying to do things but it almost feels like our entire career was a rear guard action there was only one sort of time that period 78 79 when basically no one quite knew what was happening and that was exciting You're kind of a musicologist. Your art tries to canonize some of the greats in country and blues. And I've always been fascinated by how British rockers have taken to American country music far more than American rockers ever did. Can you talk about your affinity for the older version of American country music? Well, we started when we were on you know, Virgin Records in 1979, 1980. We kind of started to feel pretty disillusioned with the whole punk thing rather than being a wide-open license to do anything you wanted, suddenly it become a style and a fashion, and we really felt quite uncomfortable within that. So we started looking around for other forms of music, and through people we met. First, we met a guy called Bill Leader, who was like this amazing figure who recorded Bert Yance's first album, Christy Moore's first album, and also did loads of field recordings of kind of traditional English country dance music and, and folk music. He really liked us and told us that we were part of another tradition altogether. And that was kind of interesting. 
And then a, a DJ from Chicago called Terry Nelson turned up in London in 1983 when we were kind of fumbling around trying to get something back together after being on a major label and getting dropped. And he told us we were like country and western bands. Hmm. And we said, what are you talking about? Because we hated country and western music. I thought we thought we did. But he said, all your songs uh, about drinking in bars and failed sexual relationships. <laughs> and they only ever have like two chords in them or three chords. Then he played as Ernest Tubb and George Jones and uh, Merle Haggard and some of the Patsy Cline stuff. We knew about Hank Williams, and I knew about Johnny Cash, but I didn't make the connection that Cash was anything to do with country music. He was, to me, Cash was like Elvis or someone. But we listened, and one of the things we were trying to do with punk rock was kind of tear down the barriers between the audience and the band, you know, so we were trying to not be the kind of stars in the spotlight. But listen to some of these songs, and it's something like, well, someone like Merle Haggard, he is... He is his audience. The way he speaks in his songs is a directness. We became very interested in different forms of songwriting and different styles of music, and we really loved that classic honky-tonk stuff. Probably because we were all in our late 20s, and we'd like loved and lost like Frank at that point. <laughs> Good reference. Thank you for that. See, I got one in. I got <laughs> another one in. <laughs> What is your favorite scene from This Is Spinal Tap, and why? Well, so many to choose from. And uh, I've got to say, though, there's one that's sort of really stuck in my mind. I like when they're on the bus, and a bunch of guys are down the back of the bus playing a video game. I think Viv Savage is playing a video game at the back of the bus, and uh, Davidson Hubbins is with his wife, Janine, who's just arrived on the tour, and she's made him a little jumper with a planet on it. And uh, he's kind of looking down at the back of the bus because he's on tour and he's in a rock band. And she's going, what's wrong? What's wrong? Oh, I don't know. And she doesn't want him to go down and be with his band members. And he really wants to go down and be with his band members. And this is a discussion I've had with my wife. You know, <laughs> She's come on tour with us. It's like... If you come on tour, I'm going to be with the guys in the band. That's the way it works. You know what I mean? It really rings true. You know, if you bring spouses on the road, it's a kind of hard world for them to understand. I don't know. Just a, it's not like a f hilariously funny moment, but it really rings true. Every time I see that bit, I'm like, oh my god, I've done that. I've stared down the back of the bus <laughs> to see what the other guys are doing. That's going to kill me when she is. But we have talked about it, and she, and she does understand. She does understand, but lots of favorite moments. I was lucky enough to meet Ari Shearer a number of times. He came to an art show of mine in, with his wife, Judith, in New Orleans a few years ago. And he does a Christmas show every year, and he, they've been doing it in Chicago. So he's invited me to come and sing a few songs every Christmas, and we've had some really great chats about the making of Spinal Tap. Once I was talking to him about the whole Derek Small subplot of his divorce, which is only visible in the outtakes on the DVD. But I said, that's a really strong story. I was sad that you didn't put that in the movie. He says, 
Johnny, we, you always have to kill your babies. <laughs> and it, <laughs> but it's like you just see him and something else is going on and he's always on a, a payphone going, all right, she can have the mini. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also pretty great. And also in the outtakes is the bit where the guy who's like trying to tell him about a life like Frank's and they roll the window up on him. He ends up in the hotel room with him smoking pot and just running around in his underpants, which <laughs> that also rings very true because in the 70s, I knew a bunch of bands from Wales. You know, They would hire someone from the local rugby club. They would have access to a van or a coach of some sort, and they would take this poor person away with them for a month traveling around Europe touring, and the guy would always come back with flowers in his hair covered in beads and a complete pothead. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, again, so much of Spinal Tap, is, I don't know how they did it, because I think it's, it's brilliantly observed, and so much of it really rings true to the experience of touring in a band. And I know it's com comical and cartoonish, but there's so many moments in it that are just exactly, you know, ugly. oh, yeah, I know that bit. You know, that's so right. <laughs> Turning up at the uh, in-store and there's no one there. You know, we, <laughs> <laughs> we've done that so fucking many times. <laughs> yeah, I remember we once did an in-store at a really packed Best Buy and no one was there to see us. And we're trying to do uh, an acoustic set and they just wheeled out a refrigerator and plopped it in front of us. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, I've read some musicians say that they can't watch Spinal Tap, that it's too real for them. And even Tom Waits and The Edge said that it makes them cry. I don't know. Maybe if you haven't got a sense of humor, it might be painful. You know what I mean? The first time I saw it, it must have been about 84, 85 when it came out in England. And it was at the Playhouse in Leeds, and I went with a few people. And we were laughing all the way through it, and people were telling us to <laughs> shut up. <laughs> And they, so many people there watching it that night thought it was a serious documentary. And then there were some guys in the lobby on the way out, and I heard them just saying, oh, they were really shit, weren't they? I said, yeah, I'd never heard of them either. <laughs> <laughs> and people did not realize it was a fictional band with actors. So I thought that's, must, that's an achievement in itself. But I have to say as well, the accents are fantastic. Nigel Tufnell's delivery, you know, he's not a British person, yet that is very, very, very good, very convincing, very clever. I love it. Well, out of anyone, Christopher Guest has the strongest lineage. Well, yeah, yes, I suppose he's got, he has, he's a lord in the House of Lords or something. Yeah, right. But, but then the movie's got heart as well. They're all ridiculous and pathetic. And then... Nigel comes back, you really want David to bring him out on stage, and it feels really great. It's an actual happy, triumphant moment where you're really rooting for Nigel to be back in the band, because what else is Nigel going to do? I showed it to my kids, which was interesting, because I really thought it was a kind of in-joke movie for people who spend a lot of their life touring, and it was very funny for us, but I couldn't separate myself from the movie. So when I watched it with my kids... They got it just as a straight comedy film. They didn't need to know all the uh, inside information. It was just funny. And I thought that was a great achievement as well, because I couldn't tell 
whether it was just my, you know, involvement in the music business and all the crap and failures the Mekons have had that made us empathize or understand what was going on with Spinal Tap. But to my kids, it was just a really, really funny movie that they loved and they laughed in all the same places I did. So I felt that was a brilliant achievement as well. That's really cool, John. I mean, without you necessarily naming them as Spinal Tap moments, have your children been hearing your Spinal Tap moments stories their entire lives? They've always had busy schedules doing their own shit, so <laughs> I'm not sure they care about what I do that much. <laughs> <laughs> they've been forced into situations, you know, where they've had to come and be on tour with me. And My older boy, the one who's just moved to L.A., Jimmy, he actually tried to tour manage the Mekons on a European jaunt, but it was impossible. So we just gave up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, John, I was a concert tour manager and I actually, you know, went out for the first time when I was 24. All right. right. I can empathize with your son's experience. And I think the thing that got Alan and me thinking about a podcast that has This Is Spinal Tap as inspiration is what you've said about these situations that are parodied in Spinal Tap are actually true. And they are experienced broadly in different forms by anybody who's been on the road, anybody who's played in a band. And to share a quick anecdote, I was with this band called the Bodines from Milwaukee. Yeah, I know the Bodines. And we were at the Hyatt on Sunset in Los Angeles. And they were going to do a song on TV at the local Fox studio in Hollywood. So we went into the lobby. There was a limo sitting there. We got in the limo, and the driver starts driving in the wrong direction. (laughs) (laughs) After a few blocks, I kind of go, so you're going to the Fox station, right? He's like, "Uh, aren't you guys Tara and Nefertiti going to Abbey Road Studios? (laughs) 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 I'm like, no, this is not Tara and Nefertiti. So the guy does a U-turn. Heads back to the Hyatt, pulls in. There's another limo waiting and a very disgruntled looking rap band standing there who's not being allowed to get into the limo. They thought they were supposed to. And then we have to unpile out of their car and get into our own. Then we drive down to the TV studio. We get set up. And again, this is early. This is like seven, you know, seven in the morning or something like that. And all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're seeing on the screen what's happening before us. And it is a rabbi doing a puppet show. <laughs> <laughs> and then Pauly Shore was in the dressing room waiting to do his thing. So I think, you know, the Bodines played between the puppet show and Polly Shore. So it was just like, if that wasn't pulled straight from Spinal Tap, I don't know what was. <laughs> <laughs> I did a TV thing. It was just me on my own. I think it was promoting something, but it was a lunchtime show. And they wanted me to go, and no one else could do it. So I just went in on my own, and I took my mum with me. And it was on, I think, Channel 7 in Chicago. And I, I turned up at the studios, and I put my mum in the green room. And uh, the atmosphere there was like a morgue. I couldn't tell what was going on. No one was making eye contact. Everyone was looking at the ground. <laughs> People were just walking around like black clouds over their heads. There was panic in the air. You could just sense it. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, my God, what has just happened? And then I had to go out and I did my song, you know, danced around in the studio with the lights on me and <laughs> got off. And then somebody came in and said, oh, did you see David Carradine? And I went, David Carradine? Was he here? He says, oh, yeah, he was here. And apparently 
just before I arrived, he'd been smoking a cigarette in the studio, and somebody tried to make him stop. <laughs> he said, okay, make me. Oh. And then it was complete panic, and no one could make him stop smoking because no one wanted to get into a physical fight with him. So he went and sat down and for the interview, and the presenter said, so I've got the legendary David Carradine with me here today. And Carradine just looks at the camera and goes, legend fucking Derry. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody hit the six second button and it just went out. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that felt pretty spinal tap. <laughs> You know, one time when the Mekons even out Spinal Tap Tap was on your first record, where they put a photo of the wrong band, Gang of Four, on the cover. Ah, that wasn't the wrong band's photo, though. It wasn't? No, we, that was deliberate. People have been saying that for years. We put that on there. Oh, that's funny. Because on their album cover, the back cover just said, Hello, Mekons, Entertainment. So when our album came out, we put a little picture of them on it. Because <laughs> they were our... Um, Drunken buddies, you know, so. Well, here we go. Debunking myths on too much effing perspective. Perfect. Yeah. Too much effing perspective. Talk to us about the A&M Christmas party after you were uh, signed by A&M. Oh, that's a good one. I was trying to think of moments where it was demoralizing, appalling, so crap it was funny. And, uh, yeah. They announced at the A&M Christmas party, which we'd uh, played in L.A. the night before, and we said, oh, you've got to come to the Christmas party. We were on A&M, you know, on a major label in the USA. We really finally made it, you know, and uh, the album was doing okay. We thought we didn't realize that it was actually doing rubbish because they expected to sell hundreds of thousands, and we actually sold 30,000, which we thought was great. But I think it was... Jerry Moss and then someone else. Herb Albert wasn't even there, but Jerry Moss and his uh, other head honcho were up on the stage, and they, they announced that they had two new sign-ins from the UK. So we we're all like kind of patting the hair down and feeling good, and they're going to introduce these two two new sign-ins. So they introduced two bands, neither of which are us. <laughs> and I think one was Delamitri, and then I forget who the other one was, and then. There's a kind of kerfuffle, <laughs> and then somebody who's in our A&R department goes up and starts talking to them and pointing at us, and they shook their heads and <laughs> went on with the show. But <laughs> So we were actually, yeah, standing there waiting to be introduced to the staff of A&M, and we weren't because they, didn't, they decided that we weren't really worth the bother. But that was actually quite a... Funny day, because a guy who shifted boxes in the warehouse came out and said, are you the Mekons? I love you guys. And that was like the only recognition we got. So we, me and Tom drank quite a lot of vodka after that. And then I was kind of wandering around the offices, and I wandered into this room, and this, this woman said to me, can I help you, honey? And I was like, uh, I, I don't know. I think I'm a bit lost. And she said, oh, this is Herb's office. Oh. I noticed on the door it says Herb Albert. I'm like, oh, wow, really? 
And she said, yeah. I said, my mother's a huge Herb Albert fan. And she said, oh, would, would she like his new album? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. Do you have one I could give her? Because I'm going back to Wales for Christmas. <laughs> this lovely woman, she's great. She's Herb Albert's secretary for years and years and years. And she said, do you want it signed? I was going like, I would love it signed, but I know Herb's not around, is he? She said, oh, I do all his signing. What do you want it to say? <laughs> I said, I don't know. What should it say? She went, okay, I know. What's your mother's name? I said, well, Kit, Mrs. Lancashire. Dear Kit, you have a fine and talented son, Herb Albert, on this <laughs> weird jazz fusion, you know, late Herb Albert LP. <laughs> And I carried it home and I gave it to my mother and I never, ever told her that her barber didn't sign it. And she treasured it. I don't think she listened to it because it, she wasn't really into jazz fusion, but <laughs> she liked it when he played Tijuana Brass Christmas Carols. Sure. Yeah. That is the nicest story. <laughs> Boy. Yeah. Oh, she was lovely. I just thought it was, it was great. It was my, that was the most positive experience I had the whole time I was on A&M, really. It was kind of like... Tap into America, you know? <laughs> How did you wind up in Chicago, of all places? Well, me and Helen got together when she was living in France. She told me that it was probably uh, not much point us continuing our relationship because she was going back to Chicago to be a architecture postgrad student at UIC, and she was going to be working seven days a week, and we wouldn't get a chance to see each other. So, and I said, maybe I'll just come to Chicago. I mean, at the time, it was the one place in the states where I had a lot of friends. We were still touring a lot of that time, so I'd come for a week before a tour, stay for a few weeks after a tour, you know, and it finally ended up getting an apartment and we got married. So I've been here ever since. I romanticized that town. I miss it. I came here because I wanted to pursue screenwriting and I just got stuck here. And it's hard to get back once you have your kids grown up. Yeah, that, I mean, that was it with me. I didn't think... When we moved here, I didn't think, okay, now I'm going to go and live in Chicago for the next 30 years. But we had kids, and that's kind of what happened. So, But Chicago's been incredibly supportive for me. I've done things here I would not have been able to do uh, if I'd stayed in England. Or I was living in England, but I mean, I've come from Wales. I don't know. You know, you never know. Maybe things would have gone fantastic if I'd moved back to South Wales and got a job down a coal mine, but uh, <laughs> I didn't. So, well, I think you're pretty safe there. That because uh, there aren't any coal mines. Margaret Thatcher shut them all. Well, I read that you guys got back together again to record an album for the coal miners back in '84, right? And you were disbanded at the time. We were never disbanded, but we put a proper band together. I was actually playing with a band called The Three Johns, and Tom said, well, Mekon's been asked to do some miners' benefit shows. Would I be cool if he put together a band? Because I was in Europe, but there was a certain urgency about the whole thing, and I just said, yeah, do it. And Steve Goulding and Lou, who was in the treat back at the time, were good friends of ours, and he was in The Damned before that, and Steve Goulding, who was in Graham Parker and Aruma, 
both were willing to come along and be in the Mekons for a few miners' benefit shows. And we kept doing those shows. After I came back from the tour with the Three Johns in Europe, I kind of slotted in and uh, a whole new band existed. We liked it so much, we recorded Fear and Whiskey. And the band pretty much stayed together. It's still pretty much together now. That's insane that Steve Goulding's your band. I, I, I was a big Graham Parker and the Rumor fan, and uh, obviously his part on watching the detectives is... Well, we used to use that, actually, if we weren't getting any respect from the sound man. <laughs> I'd just say, to the beginning of watching the detectives, and they would usually perk up a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I read, John, that you collaborated with the artist Cynthia Albritton, a.k.a. Cynthia Plaster Caster, on a particular sculpture. Yeah, she's a good friend of the Mekons. I met her in 1985 when I first came to Chicago. On June the 24th, 1985, the three Johns played the Metro in Chicago, and uh I was introduced to her, then I met her again the next night, and we played a little pop-up gig in a bar, and uh, she told me what she wanted to do and what, what her art form was, and I was frankly terrified. But three years later, I, uh, I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> you are the subject of Plaster Cast Penis number 00039. Really? Your position is between Mary Biker of Gay Bikers on Acid and... um, Well, he was my buddy and he told me that it was more like a high school experiment than a kind of rock and roll experience. (laughs) And he was absolutely right. So yeah, you're between Mary Biker of Gay Bikers on Acid and number 00040, Chris Conley from Ministry and Revolting Cox. Why all British people? I don't know. Well, but then you're in storied company across the portfolio, right? G- including Jimi Hendrix and Noel Redding from the Jimi Hendrix Experience. Yeah. Eric Burden from The Animals, Wayne Kramer from MC5, Ainsley Dunbar from Journey and Mothers of Invention, Jill Biafra from Dead Kennedys, Pete Shelley from Buzzcocks. I mean, it's a it's like an all-star team. What can you actually tell us about the experience of being in her studio? We didn't go around after a gig when we were all high on drugs or anything like that. We actually went when I was not on tour. And uh, it was like a very strange science experiment because she had to make these compounds and then there was, you know, physical reactions. (laughs) (laughs) It was uh, very respectful and clinical, I have to say. (laughs) That's really interesting. That's very funny. I was very pleased that it wasn't a disaster like Noel Redding's. So there you go. (laughs) <laughs> I want our listeners to know what a storied career the band has had and the love that critics have given you. Obviously, Lester Bangs called you guys the most revolutionary rock band in history. He said we were better than the Beatles. We were better than REO, Speedwagon, and Budgie combined. <laughs> wow. He also had this thing to say, which can't be true. He says, I never listen to music, and neither do the Mekons. They make it instead. <laughs> you listen to a lot of music. I do, yeah. Maybe at the time I didn't. I don't know. 
Well, I think I was in the room with him when he wrote that, so it was probably... (laughs) (laughs) I was like 22 years old, and I went to New York for the first time and played New Year's Eve with the Gang of Four and the Au Pairs and the Mekons at Haraz, and then... The next night went was invited to a kind of rock and roll party where members of the Voidoids were there and and lots of New York scenes to the people and and Lester Bangs was there. He came up to me and Andy and I think it was the three of us from the Mekons who'd survived the trip and he just came and said, You're the Mekons. I saw you last night. Why'd you guys play that dog shit music? <laughs> and we just started laughing and going, ah, that's very good. Tell you're a journalist because it is dog shit music. You nailed that. <laughs> no, I just said that to annoy you. You're meant to defend yourselves. I was going, no, you're absolutely right. But we play dog shit music. And he's like, this is brilliant. A band that doesn't even like itself. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, we really didn't like ourselves very much. That was the closest we ever came to really splitting up. It was kind of like a little boondoggle we went on to in New York, but it was all part of the Gang of Four's plan to keep us going. They used to toss us carrots every now and then, so we would continue as a band when really every other bit of information on the planet told us that we should definitely stop as soon as possible. But the taste for going to New York was great, and I hung around for about a week, me and Andy Corrigan, and I hung out with uh, Lester quite a lot. Went around his apartment and sat and talked and talked and talked. And, and he got into writing things about us. He wrote a whole thing that's in his book about the Mekons, which it's all made up words. And in the middle, it just says Mekons. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Yeah, there's some very interesting Lester Bangs colloquialisms in there. But it is kind of amazing that you guys have not sold more albums. The Mekons Rock and Roll sold 23,000 copies. I mean, that's a classic album. It's shocking. I bet it sold more in reissue than it maybe did in its original run. Um, I don't think so. No? I don't think it's really been reissued that, that much. Huh. A&M still own that album, I think. We're actually looking into that at the moment to see what tender nuggets of our past we can get back and exploit to pay for our retirement home visits. Maybe Polymer Records will be generous on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Talk to Eaton Hogg himself. Uh, Is he still running it? (laughs) In heaven. I thought we were just going to talk about Spinal Tap, but you've spun it out into a whole cosmos of vaguely Spinal Tap-related <laughs> moments. So it's very clever. Very clever you are. We've left an editing nightmare. But um, <laughs> right. all right, John, you know, we want to give you opportunity to plug whatever you're doing. And you are one of the most prolific artists I've ever seen. You do a lot of stuff. Uh, where can our listeners see and hear all your great work? Um, the best place to see my artwork is yarddog.com, which is a fantastic folk and musicians sort of run art gallery down in Austin, Texas. And I've been working with them since, I don't know, the late 90s. And it's sad because of the pandemic, I haven't been to Austin for nearly two years. 
I'm eager to go down and I have an opening of an art show, which I'm working on at the moment down there. I think it's the 12th of November. So that's quite exciting. And also there's a company called Tiny Global Productions that have been putting out an endless series of seven-inch singles, which we've been recording throughout the pandemic. The first set of three came out. I think there's another set of three just went on sale, but I think they're sold out now. I think the idea is to make 23 different singles. New new material? (laughs) Yeah, it's all new stuff. It's a label based in Valencia, Spain, but they've been sending me money to go and record during the pandemic, and that's been a nice thing. And I know, John, you have a Facebook page, and the band has a Facebook page, which lays out your extensive touring schedule, so I suggest everyone look at that. Thanks a lot for coming. It was great reuniting with you. And when you come to L.A., we have to have a drink. Lovely talking. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Alan. Thank you, John. We hope you enjoyed this blast from the TMEP show past. Check out our other episodes with members of Garbage, The Pixies, Slater Kinney, Drive-By Truckers, OK Go, even comedian David Cross, artist Shepard Ferry, and many others. You can find our entire catalog at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'm Alex Hoffman. And I'm Alan Keller. Thanks for joining us on Too Much Effing Perspective. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original.